0: If you've got a Bible with you, turn to John chapter 19, where we're going to be this morning as we unpack some scripture together. If you're a guest with us, uh, you find us in the middle of a series called Gospel Community. And what we've been looking at over the last several weeks are some of the choices that we make as believers that bind us together as a part of a family of faith. And this morning we come to John chapter, nine, chapter, chapter 20, I'm sorry, um, as we look at another one of those choices that we must make in life if we're going to be we're truly bound together as a part of a church, as a part of a community of people whose lives are being woven together. Uh, John chapter 20 is obviously toward the end of John's gospel, and in John's gospel at this point, Jesus has lived. Jesus has been arrested. He has been tried. He has been convicted. He has been crucified. He has been buried. And now he has been resurrected. He has risen from the grave. And in John chapter 20, Jesus shows up to his disciples, uh, and he he begins to address them and tell them now that he has been risen from the grave, what their mission is in this life. And so if you follow along with me, if you've got a copy of the scriptures there in front of you, you can follow along on the screen. In John chapter 20, beginning in verse 19, we find these words. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now, the locker room and the battlefield, those of you who have had experience in athletics or perhaps in the military, they have a way of binding people together, perhaps like no other experiences in this life do. Uh, Whenever you've got a team of individuals who are in a locker room together and they're in a season together and they've got a common goal, they've got a common purpose, they've got a common aim, a common objective, there is a mission that they are on together. It binds them together. They sacrifice for one another and they serve one another and they are bound together. And so whenever you gather with your friends who perhaps participate in athletics with you years ago you're still talking about some of those common experiences that you had some of those games that you played in right and me as i think back on those yester years or becoming very much in in the in the rearview mirror for me, as I have been reminded lately that I'm now in my late 30s uh, by one of our elders here at the church. Uh, but as I think back on some of those experiences and I think back around some of that camaraderie that existed on athletic teams that I played on, we were bound together, we were brought together because of this mission that we were on to win a championship or to achieve a particular uh, number of wins in that season. And those of you who have been on the battlefield, you know that as well. Perhaps the cost and the stakes are a a lot higher there than they are in some silly game that we play together as kids. But on the battlefield, the mission binds people together. There is something about going to war with people. There is something about setting foot and on the front lines with people where you're depending upon that person, and it begins to weave your life together in such a way that, it, that even years from, removed from that experience is you still think back on those experiences together and you still remember those very vividly and you still feel a certain bond and connection with those people because of the mission that you were on together. And the same is true in the church. When you think about the church and the people that God has brought together, even into this church and even the Sabine Creek Fellowship, what binds us together is the mission that God has given us. It's the mission that he's given us. And you see, you can attend church all of your life and you can be even a member on a church. You can have a role on a church. You can give to a church financially. You may even serve in ministries of the church and yet never really feel like you've been bound together with those people, like you've been woven together with those people, like the thread of your life and the thread of their lives have been interlocked. And one of the reasons is, is because sometimes in the church, we wind up choosing maintenance over mission. And so we run lots of programs for those who are inside and we run lots of, 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 of Bible studies and, and, and ministries for people who are already here. But we lose sight of the folks who are not yet here and the mission that Jesus has given us. And it's possible to be a member of a church 20, 30, 40 years and never really feel integrated, never really feel connected because you're not living on mission with those people. Rather, you're just kind of maintaining what exists as opposed to trying trying to blaze new ground and take new ground and see what God would do in our community and in our cities. See, one of the reasons that we don't feel like we're being woven together is because perhaps we've got all of our theological T's crossed and all of our theological I's dotted And yet, that information is just being locked up away behind closed doors and it's not pressing itself out into the lives of people who are in desperate need. Because we're not living on mission. And we choose maintenance over mission. And what I want to look at this morning from John chapter 20 is what Jesus says if we're really going to be bound together as a community of faith, that that is, is tightly bound, that is interwoven with one another, that we're gonna have to learn what it is to choose mission over maintenance and move out into the world and to engage those who are lost and to engage those who are hurting, to engage those who are broken, to engage those who are dying. You gotta choose mission over maintenance if you really wanna feel and experience that kind of gospel community, a community that's built on, that's formed by, and founded on the gospel. I've got to learn to choose mission over maintenance, and so do you. So what does that look like? What does that look like? In John chapter 20, I think we see what Jesus says it looks like, and here's what it looks like. You and I, if we're going to choose mission over maintenance, here's what we've got to learn to do, what we've got to submit ourselves to do. To choose mission over maintenance, we've got to learn to go like Jesus came got to learn to go like Jesus came. Look at what John, Jesus says to his disciples when he shows up. Can you imagine the scene there in John chapter 20 as the disciples after Jesus has been crucified, they don't know that he's been resurrected as of yet. And so they're all huddled up here in a room and they've got the doors locked because they're afraid of the authorities who have just crucified their Lord. And so now they're, they're concerned that maybe they're going to come after them. Hey, those guys were with Jesus. We got to go get them too. And so they're locked and they're withdrawn and they're huddling out of fear. And Jesus shows up in their midst right among them and when he shows up among them listen to what he says he doesn't say oh i know you guys are scared just stay here just ride it out right just ride it out right here behind closed doors what does he say no he doesn't say that he says as the father has sent me so i am sending you He looks at Peter and he looks at James and he looks at John and he looks at Andrew. He looks at uh, all of these men who had followed him for these three years of his public ministry. And he says, the same way the Father has sent me into the world, so I'm also sending you into the world. Jesus says, with the same mission that I came from heaven to earth, so also I'm sending you out of this room beyond those locked doors so you can't hide and huddle any longer, and I'm sending you out into the world on the same mission that I came with. Even as the Father has sent me, Jesus says, so I am sending you. In fact, if, if, you, if you look at what Jesus says in the Greek, what you see there in the text is that what Jesus says in the mission that I've been given by God is this. Is that my mission didn't stop the moment that I was crucified. My mission didn't, didn't stop the moment that I was laid in the grave. My mission didn't stop even now that I've been resurrected. And my mission will not stop even once I have been ascended into the heavens and seated at the right hand of the Father but my mission is perpetual it continues to extend to you he says to his followers and by extension to us that jesus the mission that jesus was on is the same mission that he sends us on jesus says you gotta you gotta learn to go like i came you gotta learn to go like i came philip Schaff, uh, he was a A Swiss theologian in the late 19th century, listen to what he said. He wrote this one time on one occasion about Christianity. He said, Christianity once established after Jesus, death, resurrection and ascension, once established was its own best missionary. It grew naturally from within. It attracted people by its very presence. It was a light shining in darkness and illuminating the darkness And while there was no professional missionaries devoting their whole life to this specific work, every congregation was a missionary society and every Christian believer, a missionary inflamed by the love of Christ to convert his fellow man. Schaff says this, listen, at the, in the early stages of Christianity, they didn't have seminaries and they didn't have training schools. They didn't have mission organizations that were recruiting and training and equipping and sending people out. He said rather at the, at the very roots of Christianity, what you had were a common, a, a common brotherhood and sisterhood of individuals who were inflamed, he says, by love for Jesus. And so naturally they went out with the gospel to extend it to those around them. Says there were no paid professional missionaries. There were no support letters being sent home to other people saying, Would you send me to Australia? Would you send me to Romania? Would you send me to these hard, difficult places? Rather, in the early days of Christianity, these individuals said, We love Jesus and we want you to love Jesus. And so, in the same way that Jesus was sent, they went into the communities and cities around them. And that's why the Apostle Paul would then travel the Mediterranean region, pastor, or preaching and pastoring and planting churches. Jesus says, if you're going to ha- be on mission, you've got to learn to go like I came. Now, why does Jesus come? What's his purpose? What's the mission that he's on? I want you to consider the mission that Jesus is on is the same mission that you and I are on as his followers today. Jesus comes into the world to do two things, to rescue and to restore. To rescue and restore. He's moving out toward those who are in need to rescue and restore. And whenever we talk about mission here at Sabine Creek Fellowship, we use three S's. They're probably printed somewhere there on your worship guide along the bottom. We talk about sharing and shaping and sending we want to be an individual, a, a, a church community that shares the gospel, the truth of who Jesus was, the truth of what Jesus has done. We want to share that with others around us. We want to shape individuals who respond to that message in the disciples of Jesus. We want to shape their character. We want to shape their convictions. And then we want to send them out as missionaries in our communities, in our context, in the cities and neighborhoods in which we live. So, when we talk about sharing and shaping and sending, this is what we're talking about being on the mission that Jesus has given us as a church. And now that final S up there, that S of sin, let's unpack, I wanna, of sin, I want to unpack that for you a little bit this morning. What we mean by that. What we mean by sending missionaries into our communities and into our cities and into our neighborhoods. Here's what we mean. So we want to send out individuals who would both declare the gospel that like Jesus declares the gospel and they would demonstrate the gospel like Jesus demonstrates the gospel. They would declare the gospel to see people who are far from God rescued from Satan, sin and death. And they would demonstrate the gospel to see people whose lives are broken, find healing and be restored. Those two things. We want to be individuals who declare and demonstrate the gospel. Let's go what Jesus says at the end of, of, of that text that we just read this morning in verse 23. So we talk about that first D of declaring as we're sending missionaries to declare the gospel. Listen to what Jesus says. He says, if you, in verse 23, forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now, if you read any commentator, any scholar on this particular text, they almost exclusively they're going to say, listen, what Jesus is telling his followers here is not that they get to stand in judgment over anyone based on their own authority to say, you're forgiven and you're not, right? I come in and I'll, I'll, I'll kind of knight you and I won't knight you. I'll tell you you're good. I won't tell you you're good, right? But what he's saying is this, is he's entrusted to them a message." about who Jesus is and what he's done, that as they go out into the world and proclaim that, those who respond to it, they declare forgiveness for their sins, who have come to faith in Jesus. And those who do not respond to that message, their sins have not been forgiven. And so Jesus here is evidently concerned about personal conversions and personal salvation. He wants to see people saved from Satan's sin and death says you're going out with this message about who I am and what I've done and as you declare it and people respond affirmatively you are to assure them of forgiveness and as you declare it and people respond negatively and they reject it and they push it away then you're to also not assure you're to assure them that they have not been forgiven so Jesus says listen here's the dividing line those who respond to me receive forgiveness those who do not do not receive forgiveness So Jesus is evidently concerned about personal conversions and personal salvation. R.A. Torrey, uh, an early um, American pastor, said it this way, in theologian, he said, We must always bear in mind that the primary purpose of our work is not to get people to join the church or to give up their bad habits or to do anything else than this, to accept Jesus Christ as their Savior, the one who bore their sins in his own body on the tree, and the one through whom they can have immediate and entire forgiveness. He says, we're not just trying to build a club or an organization. He says, we're not just trying uh, to get people to, to give up their bad habits. Right? You, you need to quit smoking or you need to quit drinking. He says, rather, what, you're trying, what we're trying to do, the aim and the mission that Jesus has given us is that we would be telling people about who Jesus is, telling people about what Jesus has done, to see them come to faith in him and experience forgiveness and cleansing of their sin. Jesus is concerned about personal conversion. About personal salvation, that men and women, boys and girls from every generation, from every cultural context, from every nation, tribe, and tongue would one day be gathered around his throne in heaven to sing praises to the glory of God. Jesus is concerned about that. But notice what else Jesus is concerned about, why else Jesus is sent. He says also, uh, in in that very context, not only that he's come to rescue and that we would declare the gospel like Jesus declared the gospel, but we would also demonstrate that very gospel the same way that Jesus demonstrates it. Notice what Jesus says when he shows up, and his disciples are there huddled in the room, terrified. He says, peace be to you. Now, he doesn't just say it once, does he? right? He says, peace be to you. And then he shows them his hands and his side. Why? So they would see the nails, piercing marks in his hands, and they would see where the spear had been jabbed into his side. And then he says, listen, peace be to you again. As the Father sent me, so I am sending you. And when Jesus shows up and says, peace, pronounces peace, you might say, well, that was just an ancient Near Eastern greeting, kind of like you and I would shake hands and say hello. They would show up in the Jewish context and they would shake hands and they would say, peace be to you, shalom. But that concept of shalom, if you trace it back into the Old Testament... What you're going to notice is that whenever the concept of shalom shows up in the Old Testament, it's referring over and over and over again to a sense of wholeness, a sense of health, a sense of well-being and harmony. So that whenever the prophets talked about shalom, they talked about things like the they they, they use it in the context of this peace when the lion would lay down with the lamb when the when the child would play with the snake without any fear because there is harmony and wholeness throughout all of creation. This concept of shalom that there would be wholeness in life, there would be wholeness in the created order, there would be. Harmony that would exist, not just the absence of hostility, but that presence of harmony that would exist between men and women, boys and girls, humanity and the rest of the created world. And notice when Jesus says this to them, he says it to them after he's been raised. And he stands in their presence and in their midst and he says, peace, shalom to you. Most often in the Old Testament as well, when this word shalom shows up, it's a reference to the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God's coming. When the kingdom of God comes, it's going to come with this harmony and this wholeness. And Jesus says that harmony and that wholeness is beginning to break in right now. It's beginning to break in right now. Now, there's a sense in which that harmony and wholeness of all creation, we won't experience the fullness of that until one day when Jesus returns. When the kingdom of God is fully ushered in and and, and truly the lion will lay down with the lamb and the child will play with the cobra at the cobra's nest without any worry or fear. But what Jesus says is that 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 shalom, that wholeness of the material creation and of us as humanity is beginning to break in now. And that's why I'm sending you out to proclaim that to people. They can be whole through me. They can be healed through me. They can be restored through me. And Jesus doesn't just use words to declare that. He also demonstrates that with his life. If you ever read through the gospel accounts and you see Jesus performing miracles, right? You see him taking lame men who have perhaps never walked in their lives and telling them to take up their mats and go and walk. And you see men who are born without vision and sight and he touches them and he heals them and he restores their eyes. And you see children who are sick, who are on their deathbeds, and he makes them well. Even in John's gospel, you see these miracles that Jesus does. Now, what are Jesus' miracles? Why is Jesus performing these kinds of miracles? Listen, if all that Jesus wanted to do was prove that he was God, he probably could have chosen way cooler things to do than just healing people and giving them sight and giving them legs, right? He could have flown up into the sky and done flips and somersaults. Right? He could have done all kinds of amazing things. But he doesn't choose to do that. What does he do? He spits in the mud and he rubs it on people's eyes. And they have sight now. And he tells men to take up their mats and walk. And they, can, they now have strength in their legs they've never known before. Why? Because Jesus' miracles are not a suspension of the natural order. Right. He's not saying, well, this is how things are, but I'm going to suspend that and make it a little bit different for you. Rather, what Jesus miracles are are a restoration of what God's intention was from the very beginning. That men and women would have harmony and wholeness in their bodies and in relationship with all the rest of creation. His miracles aren't a suspension of the natural order. They're a restoration of it. And Jesus says that kind of shalom, that kind of wholeness is beginning to break in here and now. And so when we think about what it means to be on Jesus' mission, it means that, yes, we are concerned about people's salvation. We are concerned about personal conversions, and we are sharing the gospel with them. We're declaring the gospel that Jesus declared. And so when we show up, we're telling people like Jesus does in John chapter 3, you must be born again. When we get involved in people's lives and we're talking to them about the new birth. But not only are we telling them about the new birth, we're also investing in them and serving them and pouring out our resources for them to help be a part of this mission that Jesus has given us. Not only of rescuing people from Satan, sin, and death, but restoring wholeness and harmony in this world as we await for the fullness of that to arrive at Jesus' second coming. When we talk about declaring and demonstrating the gospel, that's what we're talking about. See, there's churches that want to pit one against the other. and They want to say, it's all about personal conversions. Or they want to say, it's all about societal justice and harmony and wholeness. But Jesus, unlike us, he holds those two things perfectly together and he pulls them together. He says, yes, it is about personal conversions. Yes, it is about seeing souls saved to one day gather around the throne and declare the praises of God, but it's also about seeing health and wholeness and harmony restored here that it would look more to, tomorrow would look more like what the, the garden did than today does. And that tomorrow would look more like that garden that's coming in Revelation chapter 21 than today does, because the church is leveraging it's leveraging its resources and moving out toward a world that's in need to restore harmony and health and wholeness. It is about personal conversions, but it's also about renewing. It is about rescuing, but it's also about restoring. Now, if you and I are going to do this, if we're going to choose mission, right, to move out into people's lives, to declare the gospel and demonstrate the gospel. Let me give you a couple of practical ways that we can begin to do that. First. I want to call us today, if you're a member of this church, I want to call you today for the next 30 days to pray and intercede for people in your neighborhood, for people in your office, for people that you meet in our community who are far from God, who do not know God through a saving relationship with Jesus Christ, that you would pray for them, that you would intercede for them, that you would be on your knees. Maybe it's a person who lives just down the street from you. Maybe your kids play together. Or maybe it's a person who sits in the cubicle next to you in your office complex and you have conversations periodically. And sometimes those conversations shift to more of, you know, they move away from just kind of water cooler talk about the game last night. And they move more toward the personal um, challenges that people are facing in their lives. That you would pray for those individuals that you have influence with and you have an opportunity to engage that you would pray that God would be working in their hearts and that you would pray that God would be preparing you to enter into that conversation. That you'd be on mission with Jesus to declare the gospel, begin to intercede and pray. Second of all, let me encourage you to serve them in any way that you can and invest in their life that you would serve them as needs arise in their life, that you would help step in to meet that need. If they're going on vacation and they need somebody to take their trash out, that you would say, hey, I can walk down the street and take your trash out for you on Thursday because I know you guys are gonna be gone. Right? Or if they need somebody to watch their kids for a date night. That you would step into that and say, "Hey, listen, we've 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 gotten to know each other the last couple of years. I'd love to serve you guys. If you guys, I know you guys have been busy lately with all this stuff going on with your family. Let us serve you somehow by let's watch your kids one night so you guys can go and get some time away as a couple." Right? Or uh, we know that you're, fa- uh, you know that you, you've, you know there there are folks in our congregation even who are going through this right now. They've been diagnosed with cancer and they're facing fighting this disease. There may be people in your neighborhood who are that way as well. And that as you get to know them, you would say, hey, let's bring you some meals. I know the things; it's draining to go through treatment. Let's bring you some meals and serve you. Make, you continue to make deposits and investments in their life. So you're praying for them. You're serving them and investing in their life. And I want to challenge you as well to share the gospel with them. Look for an occasion to step into that conversation. That you would open your mouth about who Jesus is and what he's done. Or that you would invite them to a life group that you're a part of right now. Or that you would invite them to come and attend a service here with us where they'll hear the gospel proclaimed. They'll hear me talk about Jesus. They'll hear us sing about Jesus. Over the next 30 days, I'm asking you to pray, to serve, and to share. To pray, to serve, and to share. I couldn't think of an S for the first one. That would have been much more convenient, wouldn't it? Right, I know. But I'm asking you over the next 30 days to pray, to serve, and to share. To be on this mission that Jesus has given us of declaring and demonstrating the gospel. Now, what keeps us from doing this? As we close this morning, I want to drill down on a couple of issues. What keeps us from doing this? From choosing mission over maintenance, right? I got all I, I'm theologically accurate, right? I got all that crossed over. Okay, all my T's crossed, all my I's dotted, right? I'm morally pure, and so I'm avoiding contamination. Right? But what is it that keeps us from moving out on mission? Let me suggest to you what keeps us from moving out on mission is the same thing that kept the disciples hiding in that room after Jesus' crucifixion, and it's fear. It's fear. Fear keeps us from going like Jesus came. If you look back in the text with me, in John chapter 19, in verse 19, when that that little paragraph begins, it says, "On On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. They're afraid. They're afraid of the religious authorities of their day. They're afraid of what they might do to them. They're afraid that they might come knocking and saying, listen, we know that you are with Jesus. We're going to take you out as well. Now, you may not have people knocking on your door right now saying, listen, I know you're a Christian. I'm going to drag you away and we're going to put you on a cross. That's happening in other parts of the world right now. But by God's grace, it's not happening here in our nation, in our community But there are still fears that keep us from moving out on mission, aren't there? There are for me. I don't know about for you, but there are for me. A couple of fears that keep us from moving out on mission, from going like Jesus came. One of them is this. Sometimes we have a fear of being contaminated. Right? We have a fear of being contaminated. We think that if we step out into the lives of people to bring the gospel to those who are far from God that if we get involved in their lives, that somehow it will contaminate us or our kids. Right? And So we're afraid that our kids will be influenced by their kids, or we're afraid that we'll be influenced by them. We're afraid of being contaminated. So we have moral purity on such a high level in our lives that we're, and personal holiness is so high, such a high value for us, that it causes us to draw back from the world that's around us and to isolate ourselves from those who are in need. Listen, it's one thing to live an insulated life, right, where you're surrounded by other Christians who are going to encourage you and keep you accountable and affirm you and speak truth into your life. And it's another thing to live an isolated life. You can be insulated, but not isolated. And if you and I are going to move out on mission, we've got to learn the difference. There's a difference between withdrawing from everyone around us because we're afraid of contamination versus engaging those people with a layer of insulation because we're spending time in the Word and in prayer and we're being encouraged and held accountable by our brothers and sisters in Christ, those who are in our life group, those who are walking alongside of us. It's a big difference between being insulated and isolated. Some of us were just f- afraid of being contaminated. But for others of us, and here's maybe where more, more of us are today because I know it's where I am at sometimes is that we have a fear of the mess that we're going to get involved in as we move into the real needs in real people's lives, right? Because when you step into mission and you begin to connect with people who don't have the same kind of upbringing that you have, they don't have the same kind of convictions and values that you have, and you begin to step into their lives to love them and serve them and pray for them and try and share with them, and they begin to share with you things that are going on with them. And you go, I didn't bargain for this. That is drama, right? It's a messy situation because people's lives are messy, aren't they? Listen, I get it, man. I get it. That it's going to take time and there's going to be mess. and There's going to be drama involved when you step into someone's life. Listen, in the 17 years that I've served in some kind of vocational capacity in ministry, I've had those seasons. There have been seasons in, in, in where my office, all right, has been like a script writing factory for the Jerry Springer show because of all the drama and messiness that just kind of makes its way through there. Right? There was a season where, where there was individuals in a ministry that I was leading that had, had made accusations that they had been raped by another individual in the ministry. During that same season, there were individuals committing adultery and got impregnated by their previous boyfriend while they were married to their husband, uh, and then they miscarried that child. Very same season, we had a gentleman commit suicide. So like within three weeks, man, all this stuff just kind of lands on your plate, and you're going, I have no idea what to do with this. It's messy. And I think some of us sometimes are just afraid of that mess. We're afraid that when we really get involved and in our hands dirty in people's lives, it's going to cost us something. It's going to cost us some time that we didn't bargain on giving away. It's going to require us to sacrifice some resources that really, quite honestly, we wanted to keep for ourselves. If you and I are going to go like Jesus came, we're going to have to get over our fears. How do we do that? As we close this morning, I'll draw your attention to two things Jesus says. One thing Jesus says in the text, and one thing his disciples do in the text. Listen to what he says. He says, If you're going to go like Jesus came, first of all, you've got to have power to do it. And look what he says in verse 22, because you can't do it on your own. In verse 22, the, the, the text tells us that Jesus breathes on the disciples and he says, Receive the Holy Spirit. You've got to have power. You've got to receive the Holy Spirit. You've got to lean on the Holy Spirit to empower you to go like Jesus came. Because in all honesty, you can say, well, Jesus was the Son of God. Of course he didn't get contaminated. And of course he wasn't worried about sacrificing himself. But if you read Luke's gospel, what you're going to see all throughout Luke's gospel as well. So you're going to see at every occasion, every significant juncture in Jesus' life and ministry is that he is leaning on the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit shows up, and the Holy Spirit shows up, and the Holy Spirit shows up. And if you and I are going to go like Jesus came, we've got to lean on the Holy Spirit, receive him, and lean on him, and depend upon him, because you and I don't have the power to go like Jesus came on our own. We don't. We need a power source, feeding that mission. But second of all, listen, not only do you need to receive the Holy Spirit, not only do you need a power source, because sometimes you can have power run into a building, but you never turn it on, do you? <laughs> what is it that's going to mo- motivate you and move you to turn it on, to flip it on, to move out towards others? And here's what it is. Look at the text. Look what happens in John chapter 20 whenever the disciples, when Jesus shows up and says, peace with you. And when he had said this, he showed him his hands and his side. And then the very next phrase says, then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. So the disciples see Jesus. They see his hands and they see his side. They see he's now been raised from the grave. And you know what happens? Their hearts are filled with joy. In fact, the literal word there in the text is they were rejoicing. In the fact that they had seen the Lord, they were rejoicing in this risen Christ who was standing before them. So you ask the question, what happens to Peter? Peter's locked away with the rest of them in John chapter 20. And then in Acts chapter 2, he's standing before all these Jews that he was afraid of. And he's telling them, this Jesus whom you crucified... God has made him both Lord and Christ. And Peter's standing up there on mission, proclaiming the gospel. How does he go from being the guy who's huddled behind the doors with the rest of the disciples, scared for his life, to the guy standing in a pulpit with thousands of people listening, proclaiming boldly the gospel? Because something happened when he saw the risen Christ. And he was rejoicing. He was filled with joy that sent him out. The same happens for the Apostle Paul on the road to Damascus. The Apostle Paul has been breathing threats toward Christians and trying to stamp out everything that the church was accomplishing and everything Jesus was accomplishing through them. And on the road to Damascus, he has this encounter with this blinding light as he sees Jesus in his radiance. And Jesus is speaking to him. He's already been ascended into the heavens. And the Apostle Paul has scales fall over his eyes. And he goes away for a while. And eventually those scales fall off. And when those scales fall off, he begins to move out. And he becomes the greatest missionary the the, the world's ever seen in planting churches and preaching the gospel. In all these cities in the ancient Mediterranean region, why? Because he was rejoicing in the risen Christ. There was a gladness and a joy that got pushed down into his heart that pushed him out towards others. So there's something happens in your life when you see a man who's come back from the grave, who has conquered death, and says, you will do the same. You don't have fear of anybody anymore. You don't have fear of what it's going to cost anymore. You don't have fear of being contaminated anymore. You don't have fear of getting involved in the mess and drama anymore. Because God has given you the power to do it. And he's given you the motivation as well. See, if you and I are going to be bound together in this gospel community... If your life is going to be woven together with the lives of others to where it creates something that's more beautiful and rich and dynamic and strong and vibrant, then you could be in isolation. It's going to be because you and I begin to choose mission. And in the same way on the battlefield, in the same way in the locker room, you'll begin to knit us together and bind us together in ways that we've never known before. Then when we get together, we're not just talking about personal sins that we're struggling with, but we're also talking about people that we're sharing with, praying for, and investing in. My hope is that your life group would begin to do that this week. And that you begin to hold each other accountable for that. As we begin to choose mission over maintenance. Let's pray together. Father, we come today. We thank you for your work in our lives. We thank you for the work that you've done for us and the work that you're doing in us. Father, we confess that there are times in our lives where on account of a fear of what it will cost, a a, a worry about what we will have to sacrifice, a worry even at times of being contaminated, that we choose maintenance over mission, both in our individual lives and corporately as, as churches. Father, I pray, I pray that you would help us by your grace that the spirit that we've received as we've come to faith in Jesus, that he would empower us and compel us to go out as we're rejoicing in the fact that Jesus has been raised from the grave. And as we're rejoicing in him, as we find great joy on account of that, that we would move out toward others in our community to pray for them, to share with them, and to serve them. That we might be men and women. We might be a church that's marked by both declaring the gospel and being concerned for people's souls, but also demonstrating that gospel and being concerned about people's bodies. About their physical, tangible needs and about their spiritual needs. That we wouldn't pit those things two against each other, but whether we'd pull them together, even as Jesus did. And we pray that as we do, that you would add numbers, not just so that we could grow big, but so that you would receive great glory as you save souls and heal hurts. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.